you you got your tape player turned on? Okay, I don't. I don't nobody miss none of this. I am an alcoholic. My name's Buck. I had not had a drink of liquor now in 23 days, seven months, and 35 years. But the grace of God. And this this program does work, and I'm I'm. There's a lot of people in here I love, and and this roundup's been a lot to me. Come here, fourth time, and I'm gonna try to get it right tonight. They said they're gonna keep asking, keep asking until I got it right. So, and I enjoyed the dinner, eating with you different people every time. That's nice. No, I'm not gonna start calling names, but there's a fella named Patrick. Married to Margaret, <laughs> and he sure has been nice to us since we got here, and I thank you, thank all of you. And you know, I know why I'm here, and you can look at your watch now, and then 60 minutes from right now, we'll be out of here. <laughs> if I'm not, if I hadn't finished, I'll just sit down, I can tell you now, you'll think I'm done. And uh, But uh, I, I was raised in, on a a cotton farm in North Carolina a long time ago. Now, you can look at me and tell it's a long time ago, but uh, <laughs> there was never any whiskey in our home. My dad didn't drink. Nobody had come to our house drinking. And uh, there were six boys and one girl. And I ended up drunk in the family, and I don't know how. Well, I do. I drank liquor. That's the reason I got become an alcoholic. But, you know, it's unusual. Most people got a parents or granddaddy or somebody drank liquor. Nobody in our house drank. And uh, it was just growing up, and th these people went to church now, Methodists. There wasn't no, back in them days, there wasn't no uh, Catholic. I was trying to, couldn't think of what it was. Everybody's Catholic now. Back then, there wasn't no Catholic down in our county. Uh, he was either a Baptist or a Methodist. And we, we went to the Methodist church every time the doors opened. And uh, Dad bought a, a Farm there right next to a high school. He said, my dad had no education. He said, I want my boys to have a good education. And he bought that school there, and, and my mother saw that we got to church, and my dad wanted us to go to school. And as one gra graduated from high school, the next one had to get up and start building the fires and milking the cows. And when it come my time to do that, I didn't like that at all. Man, I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, that cold bill on the fire, and then go out there and start making them cows. And I got enough money, I caught me a trailway bus, and I went to Charlotte. And got off of that bus and went out and rented me a little room and got rid of my blue bib overhauls. Now, that's been well over 60 years ago. I ain't never had no damn overhauls on since then. They, they look good on you people, but not on me. And, and that day I went up the street and I stopped in a little restaurant right across the old Southern Depot and uh, asked a man for a job. And he said, son, said, I need somebody. But you had to be 16 to work here. I said, man, I'm 16 and a half. Didn't even think about telling a lie. You know, it just come out. And he said, uh, well, you go get your workers for a bit and come on back and I'll put you to work. Told me right where to go. And so I took off over there and I... On the way over there, I kept thinking, my God, my mom and daddy told me, don't you tell no lies and don't steal no chickens and things like that. They taught us the things we were supposed to do. And here the first day, I was out there telling a lie, and it, it bothered me. And I went ahead and got my workers from it and started about it, and I kept thinking about that thing. You know, I had no lied about that thing, and it really bothered me. It didn't bother me enough to tell the truth. I went to work that evening at 3 o'clock. Well, uh, with a old boy named Owen Pruitt. I doubt if there's anybody in here ever remembers that, but I still got the newspaper. He's the man that fell out of a Piedmont airline on his fifth honeymoon. He was going from, had married this girl, and she was taking him to Asheville to beat her people. And he, I don't know, now this is what I think he thought. He thought he was going to the bathroom to take a drink of liquor. He pulled a handle, and that door cracked, and it sucked him right out. And he ended, he ended up in the cemetery in Shelby, North Carolina. They just put the marker there. They had to dig no grave for that boy. 
And uh, but that is, you know, and I didn't. I've been telling this story for twenty-five years, and a, and a guy said, "You don't think people believe that, do you?" Now that sucker, he read that paper that night. I I still got the paper where that happened, and I I, I almost quit telling that story on account of him didn't not believe me. But you know what happens to people they get behind this podium lie, they drink liquor again. So yeah, I don't take no chance on that. But um, I went to work with Pruitt that day, and everybody liked him, especially the women, just crazy about old Pruitt. And at midnight, we closed the shop, and he said, Buck, would you, would you like a drink? And I said, man, I sure would. I thought he was going to give me a Pepsi Cola. And he come back in the kitchen, and he had a, had a pint of whiskey and two glasses and a Coca-Cola. And he took the top off of that bottle and handed it to me and said, go ahead and pour you a drink. And I wanted him to be, I wanted to be Pruitt's buddy. I really did. I didn't want to drink liquor. I didn't know nothing about it. But I poured me a tumbler half full of liquor. And he said, uh, don't you want some Coke? And I said, no. I drank mine straight. Now, you, you know I never had drank no liquor. And I turned that glass of whiskey up, and I took about two swallows, and I sneezed. And liquor come out of my ears, nose, and eyes, and it just made a mess out of me. And I went on, went on uh, one of the cab drivers uh, that sat there picking up people from the depot, took me down to the little room that night. And the next morning I got up and I walked the streets of Charlotte and looked down over. And at 3 o'clock that evening I went back, and all the cab drivers was a kid that big. little old country boy done get up here and took a drink of liquor and got all messed up. And they was having fun out of it, and that was all right. And uh, went ahead and worked that day, and... That night when it was closing at midnight and an old boy named Frank Sims said, Book, why don't you come ride with me? And said, I'll show you this town. And I went out and got in the cab with him and we rode around a little bit and he made a couple pick up delivered. We pulled on a in a place down on Mint Street there in Charlton. I said, What are we gonna do here, Frank? He said, We're gonna get us a drink of liquor. And the only thing I learned about the first drink of liquor was you put a whole lot of coke and a little bit of liquor. And so I fixed my first drink and we sitting there talking and he reached over, got me a cup, and poured it full of liquor. And we were drinking along, and he said, Book said, let's go pick up some women. Now, I done had two drinks of liquor. I had a tackle a tiger that night. I said, let's go. And, uh, so <laughs> I'd have been shot two days, done experience liquor and women. Neither one of them could kill me. And I almost did before I got to AA, I tell you. But, uh, and I had, I drank for a long time, but I had a lot of fun drinking. There's a lot of years I didn't have no trouble. I just enjoyed drinking. World War II come along, they drafted me, and I went in service. Was a good soldier. Performed very well, I thought, and, uh, but I, I was afraid to get drunk. And I, I wonder now how we ever won World War II with all them drunk pilots, you know, that you hear get behind these podiums. But I was a good soldier. And when the war was over, I was in... In Paris, in a hospital right downtown in Paris, and orders come through for me to come back home. They were going to discharge me, and I was going to fly back. But my brother was sending me a carton of cigarettes a week, and I was getting a carton of cigarettes, so that was like gold. I, I didn't have no money problems at all, and so they released me from the hospital that morning, checking my outfit to fly back. Instead of going to my outfit, I went down to one of the uptown hotels at, at a little place called Pig Al. I'm sure some of you people have been to Pig Al. And I checked in the hotel, stayed there a week. And I had a good time drinking liquor and just having a good time. And I said, well, maybe I'll check in my outfit and they'll keep me here for a while. And I checked in my outfit one morning and they said, you're going to be on this plane heading for Fort Bragg 10 o'clock this morning. And the way I went, come back to Fort Bragg, three or four days I was discharged. And come back down the country and spent the night with my mom and dad. We, they went to bed, you know, with the chickens. And but the next morning, about four o'clock, my mom got up and had a big breakfast and we eat and sat around. I said, "Well, I think I'll go back to Charlotte and see if I can find me a job." And uh, that's the day I met my excuse for the next twenty years of drinking. And <laughs> that's her sitting back here in the back now. She's still hanging in there. She, she, but I went back and, and uh, stopped at the place I had worked at, and the guy said, Man, are you out of service, Buck? I said, You just got home. He said, Well, I had to fire a guy a while ago for stealing in the restaurant. And I can you imagine that? And he said, 
I had to fire him and said, boy, I want you to come to work and take his, take his shop over. I said, okay. When I got my room, come on back up there, he fired one draw, uh, thief and hired another one. And I went to work with that man that evening, and things was rocking along, and I looked up, and this old tall, lanky gal come walking in. It kind of turned me on, you know, and I stopped going. We talked a little bit, and I turned around to wait on somebody else, and when I turned around, she was gone. And Virginia was a good-looking woman, I'll tell you that. And she was she was all right. And we, uh, so she left, and I'm trying to be as nice as I can about this. <laughs> and uh, a little bit the phone rang, and she said, uh, how about taking me home? And I said, well, okay. I said, where you at? She said, well, you don't even know who this is. I said, you know, long lanky gal was in here a while ago. And she said, that's right. I said, well, where are you? And she said, I'm at home. I said, well, where you live then? She told me. I said, when I close the shop, I'll be there. And so when I closed the shop, sure enough, and I wasn't even drinking then. That day, and went down to her place, and she had the front door locked. She was set out in the swing. Now, that's a hell of a way to start off 57 years in a swing. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, we, and the next day, I went on, and like, she never did live in the house. <laughs> next, next day, she came out of the place where I was working in. We talked a little bit, and she wanted to know what's going on. I said, no, I do a little drinking, and I did. Everything was, there's no liquor stores in North Carolina in 1958. No, 1948. That, that is the wettest, dry place you've ever been. And, but the liquor stores opened in 48 there. And so uh, I told her, I said, I'm going to go out and do some drinking. I, all the cab drivers I knew and, and the bootleggers, and I said, I'm going to go out and do some drinking. I'll talk to you later. And she said, all right, and she left. And so I went ahead and closed the shop. I was getting ready to close the shop at night, and I looked, and she pulled closer to the air of the chairs there to the front door. And I thought, well, damn, I told her I wasn't going out with her. I better step over and tell her again. And I started to walk over, and I looked, and sitting up beside her in the front seat was 12 bottles, old long neck. And I saw them. I think I knew I was going to marry that woman right then. And, uh, <laughs> And I crawled in the way we went. And we drank and had fun, and things went good. A year later, uh, we were married and bought us a home, and that first child, daughter come along, and another year, another come along. But it was working hard, wasn't making no money, didn't beat, did it. We were happy. And I wasn't drinking a whole lot. And I've always said, you know, anybody and young people in love the way we were, all you needed was a mattress and a damn box of cornflakes, and you get along. And uh, we did. We really did. And, uh, and, and, and I'd stop by once in a while, and I'd, I'd drink three or four beers, you know, on the way home. And I couldn't afford it. I wasn't making no money to drink, but that was all right. And that neighborhood we lived in, all everybody was veterans out there. And we'd on a Saturday night, we might get us a quart of liquor or, or maybe a half gallon of white liquor or something, and three or four couples would sit around and drink. You ain't going to get no trouble drinking that way. And But I had a chance to go into business for myself. And uh, I, I guess we could all look down the road and we wanted to be self-employed. But we, I, I think I felt like something was changing in my life then. And I wanted to, I wanted to get in business for myself. And I went down and opened a beautiful drive-in restaurant in South Carolina. I mean, a fine restaurant, too. And we were doing quite a business. And I never made any money. And you take a little old country boy and give him a pocket full of money and a belly full of liquor, you got a problem. And 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 I went I went from not having anything to having anything that I wanted within just a couple of years. And my wife was working with me and she could take care of business as good as I could. We had back then we had good help and after the war and, and we was getting a lot of young people doing business with. And so I just let her start running the place. And I joined every club in the whole neighborhood down there. And I got started one night. I was out there in a little game at the clubhouse. And I was watching this guy. When the game was over, he, he walked over there and he said, Boy, said, me and you could make some money. He said, I've been watching you. I said, I've been watching you too. He said, we'd get together. We could make some money gambling. I said, what's your name, fella? Now, there's a message right here. 
He said, they call me Shrewdy. And he was shrewd, too. He's a little cage in down Louisiana. And we started running around just like we get, just like going to the meal. We'd get together and practice in the morning before we'd start stealing. You know, we used to call it gambling. Now it was just stealing is what we're doing, really. And we rambled around. And, and on one of these trips back, Virginia got pregnant with our last daughter. And uh, I come home, and she said, Buck, you're going to stay here and take care of this business. And let me go take care of myself this child's born. And I felt terrible about it. I told Trudy, I said, don't you come around here. I'm done with you, buddy. Until if I want to get in touch with you again, I'll come see you. He said, all right. And he left, and I told Virginia, go home, and I'll see you at midnight. And I went, she went on home. And I didn't drink anymore. I was going to quit forever. Now, I never tried to quit from the time I started drinking. At first, I didn't have any problem. Never thought about it. But. When I got in the business where I could drink the way I wanted to, I just never stopped. And that day, I'd stop forever. And I went home that night, and I took a shower, and I hadn't had a drink for 12 hours then. And I tossed and turned all night. Didn't know I needed to drink a liquor. Next morning, I got up and got dressed, went out and opened this business up, and it didn't take me a little bit to find out I couldn't get over the hot stoves and handle things. And I told my help to go home. And I had a 38 in my pocket, and I run everybody out. And I walked back in the stock room. I said, I'm going to end this. I'd always felt good about myself to then. And I went back in that stock room with that 38 in my hand, and I just was going to finish it up. And there's a quart of liquor sitting on the shelf there in the stock room. And I knocked the top off that bottle, and I drank every swallow I could get down. I don't know how long it was, two or three minutes. I thought, well, that's the silliest damn thing you ever thought about. And, you know, I knew then what to do for when I got got in a mess. I needed to drink a liquor. And from then until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never quit but one more time. I had a brother working at a service station that town. I asked him if he'd like my quit, help started quitting me. They'll quit you when you get to where you just stay drunk and Virginia wasn't able to work. And so I asked him if he'd like to go in business. I put him in business and he done well. Made a lot of money and riding up and down that, had him a home in Florida and one in North Carolina, and he riding up and down the road in that big white Cadillac, and I think, my golly, that's mine. It was mine, and I drank it up. And I resented him for that, and now me and him are good, good buddies now, but I, I just stayed mad at the whole world there for a while. And, uh, and as I, I, I'm kind of, my mind's not running right. But anyway, he, he was in business, done well. I'd get me an old service station bill, and I'd put a drink box out front and a dice table and a poker table in the back and sell liquor out the, out the side, too. And, you know, in South Carolina, when the sun goes down, them bootleggers come alive. And I know that one day, me and the sheriff, when I worked first with that time, me and the sheriff used to drink together. He come out there one day, he said, Book, said, got a federal man in town. Said he's looking for people selling liquor. He said, I know it don't concern you, but I just thought I'd tell you about it. <laughs> about two hours down, the sheriff and the federal man didn't come back. I done sold him two jugs. And see, the thing just went from bad to worse. But, uh, and I, I want to get on and talk about the program a little bit. But uh, he, uh, I did, I got in a lot of trouble quick. Started getting in jail, you know, and, and so, uh, uh one of the clubs I'd hung out at a lot and gambled at a lot. They needed somebody to run the game room and in, in, uh, in the bar. Now, that's a good job for a drunk, I'll tell you. And I done good. I made them money. I really did. And uh, one Sunday evening, I woke up out there. I hadn't been home all week. And I called Virginia and asked her to come out and get me. And she said she'd be in a little bit. And I called the manager club and told her I was quitting. He said, what's, what's wrong? You quitting? He said, you made us more money than anybody's ever run this club. And I said, well, the people that's hanging out here cause me to stay drunk, and I'm going to quit. Get away from here. And I did. I, I left there. Lay around the house for two or three weeks, and one day I told Virginia, I said, you know, if we go down on Main Street, open up a real nice restaurant, wouldn't serve any beer and wine, I wouldn't drink, and we'd get all the church people come back doing business with us, so we could make some money, get back on our feet. And it sounded good, and that's what we've done. 
But let me tell you, by that time, I'd done been in jail for bootlegged, fighting, drug out of the Red Rose Motel, and every damn thing. And if you think the church people going to come to see you, buddy, you'll starve to death waiting on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't do any business. And so one morning, I went to open that place up. And I, that's the last period of sobriety I had, if I hadn't drank anything there. I went to open that thing up one morning, and I just started to hell with it. I put the lock back in the door, went to drink, went down to the pool room, sold it for $1,000 down there in the pool room. And it paid more than that for the little sign was hanging over the front door. But that's what I was willing to pay for another drunk at that time. You know, I hear people say, oh, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. You get to hurt bad enough, you're a real alcoholic, you'll do whatever it takes to get it. And that's what I was willing to do. And I drank, that was the first of October, and I drank them until Christmas Eve. Laying over there in a little old motel and Christmas Eve I come home and the reason I come home by Christmas Eve I ain't had no money to pay the rent and the man told me to get the hell out of there and so I come home and there's a big moving van backed up the house Virginia come running out afraid that I was going to be mad I had been home since October afraid I was going to be mad because she was moving now you talk about a family illness this is, affects the whole family no doubt in my mind and she said I've got a job in Charlotte I've got a place for us to live and if you want to go you're welcome to go I said you got the bed loaded and she said yeah I said yeah let's go I ain't had no place to stay that night tell you the truth and and I said let's go and that's when we come back to Charlotte Christmas Eve 1958 and I thought oh, now Monday morning I'll go down here this was this was people lived in the neighborhood so it's moving in there at night no power on they brought some candles over Brought some things for the kids. Now, that's, that was charity for me. But thank God I didn't say anything. And, and the kids had a right good Christmas. Monday morning, I was going to go down and get a job with this man I used to work for years ago. And I and I was a good worker. And I, I thought he would hire me. But on the way down there, I got things. Now, he knows I'm a drunk, and he won't hire me. I just bypassed his place. Went on down where the carpenters and laborers, all of them hung out at, and Asked, went in and asked the man for a job. And he said, yeah, I need a labor. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm a brick contractor. I need somebody to mix more than haul brick. I said, I'll make you a good man. He said, I'll pay you a dollar an hour. This is 1959. He said, I'll pay you a dollar an hour and pay you every evening when you, when you finish the day. And I knew if I was going to drink, I had to work. And I took that job, and I worked for a dollar an hour. Three years prior to this, we was paying taxes on better than $85,000. And uh, but I was I was willing to work. I had to work, and so that's when I found out. Now this is my dope story right here. It don't take long to tell it, but I couldn't couldn't. Some days those bricklayers didn't work, and I didn't get no money. For thirty nine cent, I could buy a little bottle of terpene hydrate with codeine in it. Would get you downtown in a hurry. And I drank enough of that damn stuff. If I don't live much over a hundred, I had to never cough again. <laughs> and me and that old boy that was, boy was working with me one day he said Buck it's a place down here on the river sale. said you ought to go down and buy that place I said man I only got ten dollars for my name and I didn't but that evening I got off work went down there and I had a couple of them shooters and Man, they'd do something for me. I'd get well off when I'd get about half drunk. And I, I told them, I said, let's go down there. I'll just buy that place. And we went down there and looked the place over and I asked the man what he wanted for it. And he told me, I said, I'll be back in the morning with the cash. And I know that man laughed when I walked out there with them buddy boots and cement all over my wrenches. But I come on and tried to get sober that night. And there ain't no way in no eight hours you can get sober. If I was going back to see my brother that I put in business, I knew he wanted to hit me. So the next morning I got up and went back down to South Carolina. I went in and started telling what a nice restaurant was, and most of it lies, maybe a little bit of the truth. But he said, well, I hope you get it, Buck. I said, damn, if you ain't made a mess out of your life. I said, well, that's the reason I'm down here. I want to borrow the money for you to buy it with. He said, man, anybody made the money you made and throw it away and neglected your family, I wouldn't let you have a damn nickel. And all I want to do is get out of there. And I got up and started leaving. He said, Buck, if you ever decide to do anything about your drinking, I'll help you in any way that I can. Put you in any kind of business you want to go in. 
And why I wasn't calling him, why I said that I don't know. I said I don't think I'll ever take another drink of liquor as long as I live. And I believe I felt that way that right then. And he stopped me, and I looked around, and he had a roll of money out. And don't ever give a, a drunk no cash money out now. Tell you that. But he had a roll of money out there, and he started counting it out. And he said, that, now, you sure this is going to be enough? And you know what I thought about five minutes after I got out of the house, I said, hell, I could have got another thousand. Easy. But <laughs> I was glad to get that and was as grateful as any human being could be right then. By the time I got out to my automobile, I thought, you know, I put him in business. And he done well and talked to me that way the hell with him. And I went down and bought me a case of liquor. At the liquor store down there, you could buy him a case there. And I talked about him all the way back to Charlotte. And if I ever need alcohol so down for my life, I need thin and it had never heard of it. You know, you'd think somebody come a long way, I'd drink liquor and tell me a little bit about AA or something. But nobody messed with me. That I, I didn't have enough sense to I just went crazy at times and so they, people didn't bother me too much. Went on back and bought this place and was hanging around there and we it's a little place down the river there in Virginia. Uh, a man come in the little grill one day and he said <laughs> Watch me. You can tell when people's watching. And he said, I turned around and he said, listen, I just bought a motel here. He said, you look like a good operator. I think sometimes when you're having a bag, we operate pretty good, sure enough. But he said, I'd like to hire you to operate this motel. And I said, man, I got a wife, three children. He said, we got nice living quarters. He said, I'd love for you to come up and look at it. He said, if I know you could run a motel. And I'd lay around that motel drunk, and I knew that wasn't no bad deal, you know. And I said, uh, I'll mention it to my wife tonight, and maybe we'll talk about it. He said, I'll be up there at 8 o'clock in the morning. I, I hope you come up. That door hadn't got closed. I called her, and I said, you tell the people up at the insurance, you won't be there tomorrow. We're going to get this damn job. Sure enough, the next morning I went up there, and that man hired me and paid me more than I'd ever thought about making. I never made any money on salary. I'd done a lot of stealing, but I never made any money on salary. And... And he hired me and paid me good. And for the next four years, my wife done a damn good job running that motel, too. And, uh, and things, things rocked along good. And I'd got to hanging down at the Red Barn there and drinking and with a bunch of police. Back in there, they'd just lock you up for drinking. And they, we'd get up behind the old Red Barn out there, and they wouldn't call, come up there where the cucklebirds get on the pants and everything. And we'd just go up there and lay around and drink all day and tell lies or whatever drunks do, you know. And we got to visit old Percy. Percy Barker's his name. He died two years ago. But I got to miss Percy, and I, one morning I said, wonder where's old Percy at? Well, he could call for a nickel, but we wasn't going to spend a nickel to call about Percy. We just wondered about Percy. And uh, so uh, one day I was sitting there in the, in the morning about 10 o'clock. And this shiny car pulled in. I thought, I wonder who in the world is that? He got out, and it was old Percy. He had on a suit of clothes, a white shirt, and a necktie. And he said, Buck, you got any coffee here? I said, yeah, I got some incident in there for emergency. He said, I want a cup, so I want to talk to you about something. And we went in, and I got another drink. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, I was already well on my way. And I was making him some coffee. And he said, Buck said, I know some people can help you. I said, what are you talking about, Percy? He said, well, you got a... You got a nice wife and family. You got this little old business you're just getting started. And these people can help you. And I said, well, who is it, Percy? I thought he had a banker's who I needed to get a hold of right then, you know. I said, who is it, Percy? He said, it's a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know I had heard something about AA, but it, it registered that day. He put a damn booger on me that day, I'll tell you now. And uh, But he left and... and I, I I wouldn't I was so ashamed I wouldn't ask him nothing about it, but that Friday night I was down there in my treatment center again. It's called the Mecklenburg County Jail, and uh, and I would have given anything if Percy had been there or somebody had been there to tell me about AA then. But I drank on another ten months, and one day the girl that worked was working there for us missed the bus, and I told Virginia I said, I'm gonna run Luella home. And and I'll I'll see you after a while. And now Lou Ella like what said, Lou Ella got back the next morning, but I ain't get back for two weeks. And I was back down that river walking and talking and wondering what in the hell Percy had done to get sober. And so I ended up in the big game over there that night. 
September 21st, 1967. And I walked, started walking to the big house that morning, and the guy stopped me. He said, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going back in where the big game's at. He said, you don't go in that place. We don't last strangers back there. So I asked him if he'd like to have a drink of that 100 proof smear now. And he said, yeah. So I poured him a drink. And we got on the table over there shooting a few games. And I was talking 100 miles an hour. But I knew I'd get back in that room sooner or later. And after a while, I poured him another drink. And I said, you reckon I can get back in that room? He said, oh, hell, go on back. I know you. No trouble. So you reckon sell ourselves in a hurry. And I went back there and sitting there just pretty well drunk with a glass of liquor sitting in front of me. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to get this money, I better lay off this liquor. And as far as I know, that's the last drink of liquor I took. I don't even remember leaving that place. don't know what happened that day. I don't got back down. I come to back down on the watery there, had my shirt full of money, my pockets full of money, and was scared to death. Now, it's the first time it ever happened to me, but I was afraid that night. And as I told you, when I was a kid, our mother sent us to church and taught us to pray. And that night I got down on my knees down there in the woods and I prayed to a God that I knew about. I certainly didn't know. But I asked him to help me straighten my life out. And the next morning, the first thing I thought of when I opened my eyes was, I'm going to call Alcoholics Anonymous. But I wanted to know something about what Percy had found was trying to carry the message to me. And I, I don't know why I didn't stop on the way and call, but I didn't. Pulled in the driveway at the house, and my wife sat there looking out the window. And I hadn't even thought of how about to tell her, you know. She always wanted to know where you've been, who you've been with, what you've been doing. And and, and I, I didn't even think about that. I just got out of the car, and I walked in. She said, good morning, Buck. Now, that woman ain't never said good morning, Buck, when I've been gone for two weeks drunk. God had got to our house before I did that morning. He'd been there. And so I went in. There wasn't no fuss. She didn't want to know where it had been or nothing. And we sat around. And I wasn't about to tell her I want to do something about my drinking. And I waited. And that's why she went in the other room. And I got the telephone book out. And I looked up the number of the first two A's in the telephone book. And I dialed that number. The lady said, can I help you? And I said, I hope so. I want to do something about my drinking. She said, Would you, where, can I send somebody out? I said, oh, my God, no. Don't you send nobody to my house. You know, I guess I thought she may, might think I had a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, is there some place I could go? And she said, yeah. She said, 709 East Boulevard. We've got a clubhouse here. And if you'll come down, we'll be somebody will be here to talk to you. And I didn't tell Virginia that. I just went out and got in the car and went down there and, Got walked in, and she said, you must be Buck. And I thought, well, now, how did she know me? And I thought, oh, hell, she said, we've been talking on the phone for 10 minutes. But uh, she said, I want you to beat Jim. And Jim was a tall, well-dressed man there, and he, he said, you want to go to a meeting tonight? I said, if that's what you do to quit drinking liquor, I guess I do. He said, you be out front there at 7 o'clock tonight, and I'll pick you up. He thumped a dime down the counter and said, give me a cup of coffee, and walked out. And I thought it was cold, and I sealed it. But I wanted to stay sober more that day, and I wanted to drink. For I had a pocket full of money, and I'd gone up to the lounge there and, and, and towed a $20 bill and bought around, and I'd have been set for the day. But I went home, and I took a shower and put on the best I had. And I went down there that night, and I was sitting out front. Parked on the street in my 1951 Chevrolet with the fenders flopping, and Jim pulled up that big Chrysler Imperial electric windows, and he said, Come on, get in. I said, Uh-uh. I done hitchhiked and rode the trailway bus from Myrtle Beach back to Charlotte five or six times. But you go off with a bunch of drunks and they'll leave you. And I wasn't taking no chance going off to AA meet with somebody I didn't know, you know. And that's how much I knew about AA. And I told him, I said, I'll follow you. He said, okay. And he, I followed him over to the Queen City group that night. And there was a fellow, Irvin Hankins, run a funeral home, the biggest funeral home in Charlotte that time. And, and he was standing out front. And I knew Hank. He used to eat with me. And I said, my God, I'm sick. But they're going to bring some damn sick people in here. Got an undertaker out here, you know. <laughs> and, 
everyone pulled up and, and Hank recognized me and he come trotting over with a hand out. I've always said that was a hand of AA and Hank said, welcome, we need you here. And he said, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, boy, to myself, if he belongs to this outfit, I'm going to go out there and find out what's going on. And I did. I walked in that night and I sat down and a man named John Hoppy, he got up and talked. And God, I could identify with that man the word go. I'd done everything he'd done and some more. And, but I'd say, I thought, he's up before a bunch of people telling all this stuff. Now, I've done it, but damn if I'll ever tell anybody about it. You know? <laughs> and John said that night, he said, I'm eight years old today. And I thought, that poor dude's born on leap year or something, you know. <laughs> but what, what, he was talking about his AA birthday, you know, and I didn't know about that. And, uh, so when John died, we still had the same birthday. But uh, I listened that night, and, and I watched this little man. Some of y'all knew him, Harry B. And he had on a yellow sport coat with black stripes around it. He had on women's shoes snapped on them, patent leather. He had them greased up good that night. He was sitting there just carrying on and having a good time. And, and uh, they offered the chips, and I got a desire chip that night. And thank God I've never had to go back and get another one. It worked. And when, when I got that chip, I walked over there, and we, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. They said, Amen, didn't do no rap or nothing. And I looked around, and somebody had their hand, arm around my shoulder, and I looked, and it was Harry. He said, I'm Harry B., and I'm an alcoholic, and I want to say, hooray for you, you know. But I didn't that, but I, that's what I felt like. But I wasn't too damn proud to be an alcoholic that night. And I said, well, I'm an alcoholic, too, and my name's Buck Melton. And Harry said, Buck, I love you. I said, oh, God. I looked to see if I was unzipped, you know. I said, man, i got to get away from that man. <laughs> and, and I started back, and the fellow said, said, you're sick, aren't you, boy? And I said, man, you don't know. He said, yes, I do. And if you want to get well, you stay here with us, and we'll show you how. And that man's name was Wilson Booty. And he got sober in 1941. Never to drink again. And uh, he said, I want to ask you something. And I said, okay. So when did you have a last drink? I told him. He said, Buck, you never have to take another drink of liquor as long as you live unless you decide you'd rather be drunk than be sober. I said, how do you figure that? He said, well, you've done got 24 hours, so you don't ever have to drink again. You know, We know you can go 24 hours without a drink, so you never have to drink again. And he gave me his phone number, and Harry gave me his half a dozen of his cards and, and and I was ready to go home and I went home and, and I had to be a, oh yeah and he said you got any money on me he didn't ask me if I stole it I said yeah I got money buy you a big book it might be the best investment you ever made in your life and I believe it is I bought me a big book that night and I went out and, and got home and, and I, the lights was all on and Virginia and the children was up and I thought well that's that nice they're waiting on me tonight and I went in, and quick as I went in, they went to bed. And so I got my big book out of the clothes halfway. I dropped it when I went in and turned the big light on in the bathroom, and I started reading the big book on the fly sheet. And the time I got over to Bill's story, there was no doubt in my mind that I was an alcoholic. But, you know, we did, it was the feelings that Bill Wilson had, I had. And I said, the only difference in me and Bill Wilson, by God, he's on Wall Street and I was on West Street Street. Yeah, but we had the same feelings, and and I, and I wanted to stay sober. And I started going to meetings every night, and and uh, been going about three weeks. And I said I'll see you about nine thirty ten. I was coming home nine thirty ten. I said I'll see you about nine thirty ten. Virginia said I want to go with you. I said well come on. Quick as I said that, I said she'll go over and screw the whole deal up, you know. And uh, <laughs> and I and, and I was sponsoring myself then too, you know. I didn't. I'd, everybody was talking about the sponsor, the sponsor, and I told her, come on, and I said, I'm going to get me a sponsor tonight. And so we got over to the group there, and I didn't know, nobody told me about, nothing about Al-Anon, and I just knew the women went down the stairs. And so I, we got started in the building, and I said, they meet down there. I don't know who, well, I don't know what I, why somebody didn't tell me about that, but they didn't. So she goes downstairs that night to the Al-Anon room. And, you know, they got down there, and they, as I understand the way it happened, they cut them lights down real low, 
and they kill that damn goat, and that woman ain't never been the same since then. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's been a beautiful trip. Really has. We got three children, they know about this program. One was active in Al-Anon, and, and, and two, well, two of them was active in Al-Anon, one was Alateen. And after, uh, after she got grown and married, she got active in the church. She lives a good life, a real spiritual person. But I think she learned more from Alateen and Al-Anon, <laughs> this is be judging now, than she'll ever get into church. But uh, that's just my feeling. Uh, but thank God it, it, she's, she's still real active in the church. And, and I had a little granddaughter there. I done forgot what time I started, but I'm going to talk like it. Uh, what time did I start? Okay. And uh, when she was about three years old, she said, Papa, I want to go to the meeting with you. I said, well, come on. Her mom said, Dad, you'll get in trouble. I said, no, we, we'll be all right. And so... We, so I took her to the open speaker meeting that night, and I got on the front row, and nobody in front of us. I told her, I said, now, Rachel, you got to be quiet. I don't want you to move it around here. And she said, okay, Pop. And she sat there, just as nice as she could be. And when the meeting was over, everybody come around, got a hold of her, and told her she'd done good, give her some cookies and, and uh, Coke. And on the way home, I said, Rachel, you done real good. I'm proud of you. She said, well, when you get home, I want you to tell my mama that. I said, I will. So she started going to Al-Anon with her grandma and AA meetings with me. And at Christmas time, she was six years old, she said, come by, and they were going Christmas shopping. I said, Rachel, why don't you stay here with me and let your mama and grandma go Christmas shopping? She said, I'd like that, Pa. When they got out of the house, she said, let's have a meeting. I said, <laughs> I said what kind of meeting you want to have, Rachel? She said, oh, AA meeting. I said, okay. She said, we're going to talk. And like a whole room full. I said, okay. She said, well, tell them your name. I said, my name's Buck. She said, are you alcoholic? I said, yeah. She said, well, you have to tell them that. <laughs> and and uh, we had a meeting, and she loved the chip. She said, now, Buck's going off of the chip. I said, the white chips were beginner. Anybody for white chip? How about the red chip? She said, wait a minute, Buck, there's a lady coming way in the back to get her white chip. And, <laughs> Greatest imagination you ever seen. And somebody gave each one of the chips. She said, Now, we're going to close this meeting. We have to pray. And after we pray, if you want to refresh it, go in the kitchen. If you don't, just go on home. And I thought, She's been listening closer than I have these meetings. But, and you know, I had, these are the steps we took, and I took these steps. The program is wrapped up in trust God, clean house, and help others. And that's my program. And I, I have tried to do the things that you're supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous and to work with others. And I've, I've worked with a lot of drunks. And, and Bob and a lot of you older guys back here, we used to go to the house and get them and take them home with us. I never thought to ask my wife, it's hard to bring these drunks home. I just get them and tell her to start the soup. And, and you know, when, I'm going to tell about Charlie. One day they, I got this call and this lady said, there's a fella down here on East Trade Street that's drunker than a hoodow. And won't you come get him? I said, does he want to get sober? She said, well, hell, I don't know. He's just drunk. Falling all over the street. I said, well, we don't run a taxi service, ma'am. And I hung up the phone. I took me about 10 minutes. I went out there and got my car and I went on East Trade Street. And there was Charlie. Got out and I talked to him a little bit. You can smell it from the back of the room. That old bay rum stamp. And uh, I, I asked him, you want to do something about his drink? He said, God, yeah, it's, I'd love to. So I took him out of the Salvation Army, got him some clothes, and, and got him a razor, and got him out there in Virginia, started to suit. And I took Charlie in the bathroom, and, and there's a full-length mirror on the back of the door. And got him in there, and got him shaved and sort of halfway cleaned up. And I said, Charlie, let's go out here and get something to eat. And he said, okay. And he turned, and he saw himself in the mirror and said, oh, excuse me, I thought it's in here by myself. Did he recognize himself? Now that that that's that's what was quite a switch for old Charlie, and they, a lot of things that I done that I owed for my beans. Right, I was, I was telling Pat yesterday. I hope I could remember to tell this 
on this lake here. A lot of them boats run up and down the river there, and we had a place down on the lake there. And they had a flood in 1965. And man, stuff come down that river and the chairs, tables, pulling everything in, and this brand new big fishing boat come down through there. Pull that baby in and put it up on the bank, and I sat there all day and watched it. Nobody can come back to claim it. They come back and got everything but the boat that sat there. I said, somebody will get that thing tomorrow. I'm going to have me a boat. <laughs> Nobody can come get that boat. Next next evening, I loaded that thing up. I don't know why I'd do it at night, but. <laughs> <laughs> Took that thing back to Charlotte. Put it in the garage down there and locked the door. Now, if you ever, it, there ain't nothing as damn useless as a stole boat. <laughs> you can, you got a stole boat, you can't use it, you can't tell nobody about it. <laughs> That's the most useless thing anybody ever had. And so, a few months past, my brother was a state farm agency down there. And he told me, he said, Buck, the only big loss I had was the fishing boat. Oh, old Porter lost his boat. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no. I had Porter's boat, but I wasn't about to tell him and uh, nobody else. And I, about that time, I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and got sober. And when you get sober and you got a damn boat that you stole and don't want nobody to know it, you know your brother done paid off her, you got a problem. It'll drive you crazy. And I told, I got me a sponsor that night when Virginia went over there, and, and I told him, I said, that boat's about to run me crazy. He said, we're going to have to get rid of it, go out and do something. So I, I loaded that thing up. Well, it was still loaded. Never had to take it off the trailer. I just hooked the trailer up and took it back down to South Carolina. I got up on the highway there, and I unroped it. And, back down and I let that boat and it just went floating. Two or three weeks around my brother. He said, you know what? I said, tell me. He said, I found that boat that old Porter lost. It found it floating around down on Watery. I said, you know you did. He said, yes, I did. He said, I got a nice boat. They'd already paid for it. And so I re-laddered it and it's sitting down in my place on the lake there. If you and Virginia ever want to use it, come on down and you're welcome to it. <laughs> you couldn't tie me in that damn boat. <laughs> I don't know why I wanted to tell that tonight, but I'm here on the water again. But <laughs> and so I talked to him a time or two, and I never just couldn't get it right to come out. And one day I said, I got to tell him about that thing. It's driving me crazy. So I told him, I said, brother, I want to tell you about that boat that you got down there. He said, what about it? I said, I stole that boat. He said, oh, you know you did. And I said, I know I did. I said, now put it back in the water. He said, you know you did. I said, I'm going to tell you one more time. I sold the boat and I put it back in the water and you got the boat. And he says, no, nah, you know you did. That's 34 years ago. I ain't never told him more since then. <laughs> I've done all I could do, I thought, at that time. And and this has been a beautiful program. I've worked with a lot of new people coming 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 in the program. And back when you, you go to people's houses, and I enjoyed that, seeing people get come alive and relive again. And and one time I was, uh, this is the last story I'm going to tell, this little guy named Leo coming to the program, and he, he uh, he was sick, and talked to him a little bit, and he said, I want to come talk to you. And so some time passed. He, he got three months of writing. He called me and said, I want to come talk to you. And I said, okay. So he come up, and he said, uh, had a little briefcase there. I said, what he got there? He said, oh, I got an inventory. I said, man, you're getting it on, ain't you, buddy? It's over three months, and we ain't even done the first three steps. We got an inventory. He said, it's yours. I said, <laughs> That, that, that'll upset, upset me anyway. And I said, you know, you, you ought to be working on your own inventory. He said, no. He said, I've decided I want you to help me run my life for the rest of my life in AA. And I need to know something about you. And I've done your inventory. And I thought, by golly, that's all right. 
That's all right. I've done three inventories. My sponsor died. I got another another guy, Tom B. Died over here in Cincinnati last year. And him sponsored one another. That's a hell of a deal. Two people trying to sponsor one another. You can't scold them too bad that way. It's a good deal. But after he died, I got me another sponsor, and I've got one today. And um, so, Leo, we, we went through the steps together, and things, a good program. I loved him to death. He's just a nice guy, and he got sick, and, and he got cancer, and he said, uh, I spent that summer with him down there, and he said, uh, Book, what's going to happen to him? I said, Leo, you're going to die. Cancer's he kept. He said, well, I'm talking about what is really going to happen to me. I said, well, I don't know, Leo. I said, you're going to a good place. You've been a good man. You've worked with people for 21 years now. And wherever you go, it's going to be good. Now, you won't know. He said, well, how do you know? I said, well, I'll tell you one thing, Leo. I ain't never bet nobody's been there and come back and complained the damn bit. And I thought <laughs> he would jump out of that bed. He just hollered that day. And uh, that was on a Wednesday, and we come on back and went up in the mountains that weekend and come in Sunday evening, <clears throat> and he was gone. And I'm sure that Leo went to that good place, and he was a good man. And, and uh, you know, when you get as old as I am, you know your time's running out. And I used to be used to be afraid of that, wanted to die, and afraid to. Today I'm ready whenever my time comes. And by the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm at peace with myself and at peace with my fellow man. And I got a wife I love to death. <clears throat> and we take care of one another, Dan. She took care of, care of me for a long time. And last year she got, uh, over a year ago now, she got sick. And that, that open heart deal there. And then she had a stroke. But she's all right, and I'll take care of her as long as I can. As long as she lives, I'll take care of her, and she do the same thing for me, and I know it. We've got three three children that we're proud of. One of them works for a bank. She won't loan me no money. <laughs> one, of, one of them's a, a, a real good nurse at a hospital. And the other daughter down here at Nashville, Tennessee, with a gas company. And I love them to death. And, and I got my self-respect. You know, when you lose that damn you in a bad way, I feel good about myself most of the time today. And when my maker calls me, I hope and wants to know what I've done to this gift of sobriety. And I think it is a gift for every one of us. I hope I can say I passed it on. Thank you all for letting me share tonight. <laughs>